Judges chapter 4. I'll be reading the entire chapter today. This is the account of Deborah in the scriptures. And though much of the sermon will not be spent here, um, we'll likely be here in much greater length next week in this portion of the scriptures. Judges chapter 4. Hear once again the very word of God. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the land of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth, Hagoim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber, the Canite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanan, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth, Hagoim, to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as as Harasheth Hegoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. 
Then, she, then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, and says, Is, he, is there any man here? You shall say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And then Barak pursued Sisera. Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. The grass withers, the flowers do fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, there are many examples throughout the scriptures that give us accounts of faithful women who have served the people of God throughout the millennia. We give thanks for these examples, for these accounts, and we thank you for the women of our church and the church of Jesus Christ that live this day in the church militant. And we pray, Father, that you would strengthen them to be women of faith courageous women, women who encourage their spouses and the men of the church to do the work of the kingdom, who come alongside us to be our helpmeets, to be the ones who uphold our arms when they are weary, who pray for us, who uphold us in prayer before your throne of grace so faithfully, who give us the arrows for our quivers, who selfishly give of themselves in the homes as they rear our children and do the work of the home. Father, help us to give thanks for them always. And also, Lord, we pray that they would be full of self-control in their pursuit of the kingdom of God that they would do the work that they've been called to do, which they are best suited for, and not be tempted to go beyond those things. And so, Father, as we look into your scriptures today, may we be faithful and obedient in all things. Help us to desire that, that your blessings might flow out to the church in great measure, that we would be a city set on the hill, a tree where the kingdom of life is its fruit and the birds of the world flock to it. That we would exemplify the pearl of great price before the world and call men and women to the kingdom of God. Help us to do these things in obedience, Lord. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, as I mentioned last week, today's sermon will survey several examples of godly women who have served the church throughout the ages. 
The purpose of this survey is to consider several objections to the didactic teachings of the scriptures that we considered last Sunday from 1 Timothy 2, where the Apostle Paul wrote these words. I desire, therefore, that, the men, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in, in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, the examples I want to consider today are those of Deborah from the book of Judges, which we've just read, and then also Phoebe and Priscilla from the New Testament. As we consider these examples, we must keep in mind that our confession teaches us how we are to interpret the scriptures and the authority that rests in them. In chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, paragraphs 9 and 10, we read these words. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. And then paragraph 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. The three principles I want us to keep in mind from this portion of the confession are these. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined can be no other than the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Two, the infallible rule of interpretation of the Scripture is the Scripture itself. And three, when there is a question about the true, true and full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly to that particular Scripture. There is one additional comment about interpretation that may be helpful. There are many kinds of revelation in the scriptures. There are gospels, there are prophecies, there are didactic historical teachings, or, or didactic examples, his, uh, or, or didactic teaching, historical examples, and I'll make a distinction there in just a moment. Uh, there's revelation of different sorts, all kinds of encouragements, exhortations, admonitions. So there's much in the Bible in terms of revelation. But most of those things can be distilled to two different kinds of teaching. Didactic teachings, which are uh, teachings about uh, God's mor uh, morality and his uh, uh, commandments to us that we can read and understand uh, with clarity. And then there are pedagogic teachings, which include the, the historical accounts 
that we're going to see in just a few minutes, much like the historical account of Deborah in the book of Judges. So for today's lesson, the didactic teaching comes from the passage I've just read from 1 Timothy 2 that speaks about how men are to act in the church and women as well. While the pedagogic teachings will be the accounts of the three women that are the subject of our survey in today's lesson. With these principles in mind, let us consider the examples of Deborah, Phoebe, and Priscilla in reverse order. So I'm going to start with Priscilla, then go to Phoebe, and we'll conclude with Deborah. What is pertinent regarding Priscilla is the reference that we find in Acts 18, where we read, beginning in verse 24, these words about Priscilla. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly, boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla, there's the woman, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to, to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had been, believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what's unusual about this passage? Well, first of all, this man named Apollos was already mighty in the scriptures when he met Priscilla and Aquila. However, his understanding was immature. He only knew of the baptism of John. Apparently, he did not know of the details of Christ's ministry. And so when he began to speak boldly in the synagogue and Aquila and Priscilla heard his teachings, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is not to say that he was inaccurate before, but his knowledge and his teaching were incomplete. So he was brought up to speed, so to speak, by Priscilla and Aquila. And when he had desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. And he confronted the Jews with their errors and showed from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Here we find a reference to Priscilla and her husband, Aquila, taking aside this man, Apollos, to teach him, to explain him, to him the way of God more accurately. It is here that those who desire women to have a teaching ministry in the church often say that Priscilla is the example. Yet we must be careful to say what the scriptures say and not embellish it for our own private interpretation. When Priscilla is mentioned in the scriptures, she is always mentioned with her husband Aquila. And nowhere in scriptures is she mentioned teaching men by herself. In this example, she and her husband take aside Apollos, who is known to be eloquent and mighty in the scriptures already, only to give him 
information that makes his understanding more accurate. Though we do not know this, it is likely that he was not that he has not been taught Christ's teaching fully, but is well studied in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, had they not taken him aside, would it have been sufficient for him to teach about Christ from the Old Testament? The answer is yes. When we hear from Paul, as he tells Timothy, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Paul is speaking of the Old Testament, for the New Testament had yet to be penned. It would have been sufficient for Apollos to do his ministry with the understanding that he had. But new revelation had occurred in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God in his providence has brought this man to the home of Priscilla and Aquila. And they would teach him. Again, note that Priscilla is not acting apart from her husband, but in conjunction with her husband. She is acting in subjection to the lawful authority God has placed over her. Note also that this is the totality of God's revelation regarding the matter. We do not find any other mention of Priscilla and her husband correcting any other teacher in the scriptures. We do hear her mentioned somewhere else, and we're going to get to that uh, immediately. And it's in the context of this second lady who we're going to look at, Phoebe. So let's consider the example of Phoebe from Romans 16, verses 1 through 5. There we read, Paul's writing to the Roman church, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she is a help, uh, has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So here we see that Priscilla and Aquila had a meeting place for the church in the town in which they lived. And they risked their lives for Paul's sake. But notice in the first three verses of Romans chapter 16, that Paul is commending Phoebe to the Romans. No doubt she's there to visit, maybe visit family. We don't really know. This is the only reference in all of Scripture about Phoebe. One mention of her in verse 1 of chapter 16. To the Apostle Paul, she was a close friend and an aide. She is from the church in Sancria, which is a small village a short distance southeast of Corinth. So she's traveled from Corinth, the Corinth area, to Rome. She is no doubt traveling to Rome, and Paul is concerned for her well-being, and this is why he commends her to the care of the Roman church. Now the reason that this phrase is important to us is that Paul uses a word to describe her that to us seems almost uh, in passing, but has a, a, a connotation 
that could be a, that could be linked to an office in the church. Paul writes regarding Phoebe, quote, who is a servant of the church in Sancria, end quote. The word servant there in the Greek is the word for deacon, and it's in the accusative singular feminine form. Thus, it would be accurate to translate this word deaconess. That would be accurate. Now, some argue that because she is referred to as a, quote, deaconess, end quote, she must have been held, she must have held the ordained office of a deacon, as is described in Acts chapter 6. Similar to those men who were chosen by the church in that very passage. Now, this seems highly unlikely for many reasons. First, this is the only mention of Phoebe in the scriptures. Nowhere else in the scripture do we find a reference to her or the church at Sancria. We do know that Paul had his hair cut off in the, in the village of Sancria, but that's the only other reference we have to the town in which Phoebe lived. It's interesting, Phoebe lived there and Paul got his hair cut there. Why that's significant, we're not sure. But we do know that his hair, the cutting of his hair was related to vows that he had taken, which could have been very close to the uh, Nazarite vows of the Old Testament. But interestingly, God in his providences thought it was important that we find out Paul got his hair cut at Sencrea. One reason that we ought not to jump to the conclusion that Phoebe's description as a deaconess is is likely not a reference to the ordained office in the church is the use of that same terminology by Paul in Romans 13, where he describes the civil magistrate as a, quote, minister, end quote, or deacon of God in verse 3. So Paul is using this word in differing ways. One as a servant in chapter 16, as a minister of God in chapter 13. Now the civil magistrates in chapter 13 of Romans, to my knowledge, never came to the church to be laid on with hands to be given the title of deacon. And yet Paul describes them as ministers of God, the civil magistrates using that very term. And this teaches us that the term can be used in different ways in different passages. And so we have to, to come to some clarity with the use of that term by looking at other passages in the scripture. Remember from our, cate our catechetical training and our confession, the primary interpretive principle is that the scriptures interpret the scriptures. That's the highest authority in scriptural interpretation. I think the most compelling reason, though, not to jump to the conclusion that Phoebe was an ordained deacon in the church is the description of qualifications for holding the office of deacon found in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 15. And there we read this. Likewise, now this is right after God describes the qualifications for an overseer or an elder. So in verse 8, he now turns his attention to the deacons. Likewise, Deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, 
not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtained for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And we see that boldness in the faith in the very first deacon that was ever ordained, Stephen, the first martyr in the New Testament. He was bold in the faith. He confronted the Jews with their errors, and he gave his life for the cross of Christ in proclaiming that good news to the leaders of the day. Brethren, in this description of the diaconate qualifications, it is clear that the deacon must be many things that includes the husband of one wife. Now, despite the efforts of many in our society who want to confuse gender identities and promote same-sex marriages, the scriptures make clear that there is but one way to describe marriage, and that is between one man and one woman. This is the description of who is qualified to serve as a deacon, part of the description. It is a man who has but one wife and is faithful to God in all his ways. Interestingly, from our Lectio Continua today, we have a man who married more than one wife. He would not have qualified for a deacon. Yes, he's a, yet he's a patriarch of our faith. But he would not have been qualified as a deacon or an elder. Moreover, not just that he has to be the husband of one wife, in the breadth of scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, we do not find women in leadership in the institution of the church. Save for our final example, the judge named Deborah in Judges 4. She is the only exception in all the scriptures of a woman leading the people of God corporately. Brethren, time has escaped me. Deborah will have to wait until next week. And so we'll deal with Judges 4. Not only will I deal with the, the example of Deborah next week, though, I also want to see, teach affirmatively what the Scriptures teach for women to do in the church, because there are many passages that speak to their affirmative work in the church. And so we'll touch on those next week as well. So let, let me now come to the application of these passages. What do we learn from Priscilla and Phoebe in these passages? I would suggest the following. We must be careful not to read into the scriptures those interpretations that we desire that the scriptures teach. Meaning, we don't read the scriptures hoping to find what we're looking for. What we desire. To read into the scriptures is called eisegesis. We bring to the scriptures our predetermined concepts of what it ought to teach. On the contrary, we should form our understanding of truth by the exegesis of scripture. We read out of the scripture that which God wants us to do. We are to conform our understanding to that which springs from the scripture and not bring our preconceptions and read them into the scriptures. 
These two obscure pedagogic references to the faithful work of Christian women in, the, in Paul's epistles, both in Romans and in Acts 18, should not overthrow the clear didactic teaching of Scripture regarding the activities of women in the church from 1 Timothy 2 as well as 1 Timothy 3 as it regards the qualifications for a deacon. This is where self-control must be practiced when we come to the Scriptures. Brethren, we, we are constantly in a battle with the natural man. Every one of us. If you're not tempted to sin, you're an unusual person. And part of the temptations that we have to deal with are being drawn by the culture in which we live. We want to, we want to be relevant, don't we? Well, the Scriptures tell us how to be relevant. Relevance in the Scriptures is bringing to bear the Word of God in the circumstances in which we live. It doesn't mean conforming to the world. More often than not, it means confronting the world. Now, that's not easy for us to get our arms around, is it? How many of you enjoy confrontation? I don't see any hands. I don't either. It's not natural for us to want to be confrontational. But there's a way to do it with a winsome spirit and a contrite heart from humility that God will use in a compelling way when we share our faith with others. When we give them the alternative to what the culture teaches them. Brethren, we must not presume that we know better than God how to govern the church. Rather, we must be faithful in all things including how God has best designed his church to function. Obedience is blessed by God. Disobedience invites his wrath. Finally, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, died to redeem us, to become obedient children of God. We were once in complete rebellion, but Jesus died that we would become humble that we would humble ourselves before God and before others and learn to live in obedience with his blessings. Trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation from the wrath which we are truly due because of our sin, trusting in God for our salvation also initiates in us the ability to live in obedience to God's will. And brethren, let me encourage you. Embrace God's will. Hold it close. Put your arms around it. Because in obedience, we find both peace and safety before God. Let us pray together.